Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Jacob Galan. He's an assistant professor, part of the National Natural Toxins Research Center, NNTRC, in the Department of Chemistry, Texas A&M. So uh, we're going to talk about his work, his research into venom. So Jacob, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, what got you interested in uh, studying venom and venomous animals? It's a little bit of an unusual uh, area to work in, I think. Yeah, it is. It is. Well, so that's a really good question. It's kind of like my origin story. So actually, I am originally from South Texas in Keensville, where Texas A&M University in Keensville is located. And I was just a, a lowly student, not knowing what I wanted to do with my life. And um I started, I joined a lab and I just, you know, started doing venom research. The, the research program here that was exploring toxins and snake venom has been here for 40 years. So it was like literally in my backyard and I didn't even know it. And so I had a really great mentor at the time. Uh, his name was John Bettis. He was the director of the toxin center. And yeah, and so as an undergrad, I just started uh, getting in the lab and just, you know, playing around with these toxins and these venom and doing really cool experiments. I then continued on into my master's here in the chemistry department. And then, and I did also did my master's in, in toxin related science, uh, sciences. And then after that, I, you know, I did my PhD. I completely shifted fields into cancer biology and to various analytical techniques, developing new methods. And I was on, on another path in like in cancer cell signaling and all the, you know, and all these really cool aspects of science. But then about four years ago, the new director kind of like recruited me to come back and she was like, Hey, you, you want to get back into toxins again? And I'm like, sure, let's do it. You know? And so, okay. yeah, yeah. So that's kind of like, that's kind of how I started. I just started as a student, you know, just with a unique opportunity and now I'm back in the game. So what, what animals and what vectors of, of venom are you studying most closely? Right. So we mainly focus on 
North American snakes, vipers, rattlesnakes. I'm interested in the snakes mostly of South Texas and of California. We do have a lot of exotic snakes from Africa and Asia. Surprisingly, and we have a huge collection of venom. We're the largest uh, serpentarium in North America. And our focus, because the venom, why we focus on snakes, number one, it's a medical emergency. Every five minutes, someone dies from a snake bite. On the technical aspect of it, though, the amount of venom we can get from each snake is pretty plentiful, and we can do a lot of experiments with them. And so there's, we have a lot of projects related to the venom, to develop antivenoms, and also to look at the toxins in their medical or biomedical applications. Yeah, out of these snakes, uh, what are some of the interesting toxins you found, and do they have any other alternative uses? Oh, yeah. Um, so there's already a lot of venom-derived drugs from, so the thing is about snake venom, it's made up of about like, it can range between about 15 to 30 different protein families. So it's a very complex mixture. And it, it also depends on the, the geography of the snake. But so in this mixture, you have enzymatic proteins and non-enzymatic proteins, proteins that cause bleeding, cause like, you know, edema and all these like gross stuff, necrosis, right? But then there's a lot of these other kind of non-enzymatic toxins that kind of can interfere with, with cell, you know, they can keep you from clotting basically. And so if you think about it, one of the first drugs that, that are some of the drugs that have been used are in cardiovascular disease, because some of these toxins can actually break up clots, right? They can break up clots. And so there's a lot of venom derived drugs that focus on that. There's also these small molecules in, in snake venom that can actually be used against cancer. They can basically block cancer cells from attaching to different types of, to the epithelial cells or to, or even inhibit angiogenesis. And there's so many more too. One area right now is the ability for these toxins to inhibit pain. So analgesics, uh, I've kind of seen this mo mostly with the with cone snail venom, but the snake venom has a lot of these toxins that have an abundance of biomedical applications. Do, do uh, snakes ever fight? and, you know, envenomate each other? And if so, what happens to them? They, yeah, they do. They do. But they do. I mean, it's very possible for the snake to die from a bite from another snake. They can envenomate themselves, but they also have a remarkable capability to also inhibit the uh, toxins. So there's, they have a lot of uh, proteins that actually will neutralize the snake venom. If that happens. It doesn't mean that they couldn't die from their own venom. It just depends on the amount or the dose or if it was another snake. But it's something we don't see. Hmm. Too often, yeah. And it's usually it's usually by accident that they're, you know, either in a struggle, you know, I've never seen a snake bite itself. But, okay. Very interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But along that those lines, and this, I think you'll find this fascinating. So these snakes have blood proteins that can actually be used as therapeutics themselves, or at least as scaffolds that we can actually design different inhibitory molecules. There are warm-blooded animals that actually have a natural resistance to snake bite. What about the venom gland itself? What, what does that look like? And have, have you know you done histology? Yeah. So what's interesting about them? So we actually don't look at the kind of the histology or the anatomy of the snake of the snake glands. We actually do use the glands for doing sequencing to look at the mRNA levels of the venom toxins or potential levels of the venom toxins at the genetic level. Basically, the venom gland, you know, can range from different depending on the species can be really big or large. There's a lot of venom researchers who are, who are exploring that, but basically it's made up of a variety of cell types. I think I believe it's about four different cell types that actually, you know, excrete these molecules and they basically hold and store this venom right into in, in that gland. What's really cool right now, and I don't know if you know this, is that they're actually making, they're taking the venom gland and they're actually reproducing the venom gland in cell culture 
where it can actually make a little mini gland and start to excrete some of these proteins as well without the snake. It's pretty fascinating. They're kind of, you know, using this new biotechnology. They're called organoids. It's a new area that we're- Oh, yeah, they have, they have uh, venom sac organoids. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when a snake bites someone, mm-hmm. um, not only is the venom administered, but I would think cells are sloughed off from the snake and also administered. And you know, I don't know if there's like a specific venom cell exosomes that also are administered. And you know, has anyone been able to look at the effects of all these things? Mm, I haven't seen any kind of literature that has looked at. So from the snake, there are exosomes in the venom that do penetrate or there can get into like a wound uh, from a snake bite, right? That's actually a really good question. That's actually what we're trying to look at. So what role do these exosomes in the venom, so these little particles that do have venom toxins on them, what role do they play in the envenomation process? We're actually trying to work on some of those experiments because you would think that this snake has evolved over thousands and thousands of years, right? But yet it still has these vesicles. So there must be playing a role. They haven't been selected out. So they, they must be playing a role in the envenomation process, right? So here's the thing we got to think about. Snakes don't eat humans. So everything related to a human is kind of a medical emergency, but the main function of the venom is to immobilize and digest its prey. So these toxins are working towards that. Yeah, we can manipulate them and find benefits to them. So I would say that these exosomes, we haven't found the function yet, are probably playing a role in either digesting or help or promoting the envenomation process, maybe spreading into various vital organs or stuff like that. So that's kind of what I would suspect these uh, exosomes are doing. So if you do get bit by a snake, one thing that people do experience after they leave the hospital is uh, reoccurring coagulopathy. So after they've gotten treated with venom, uh, anti-venom, they're all fine, the swelling has gone down, they can experience or, or re-experience a snake bite, you know, almost, you know, several days later. So maybe it's very possible that these exosomes are still circulating and passing on from, from cell to cell. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. There may also be cells again sloughed off when the envenomation happens. And I know those cells probably would be attacked by the body of the recipient, you know, of the human. But let's say the human immune system is caught up with, I mean, maybe the the venom compounds allow those cells to persist and continue producing venom even while they're in the person. Uh Maybe uh, they they keep the immune system busy and those cells, you know, are able to persist for a while. I don't know. Has anyone looked at that? So you're talking about the cells from the snake from the bite actually getting into the wound. Is that what you're trying to say? Or... Yeah, I would think definitely there would be some entrainment of those cells. You know? Yeah, I don't think anybody's even suspected that that could happen or would happen um, just from the how fast the bite is. But it doesn't mean it couldn't happen or there could be some level or some, you know, type of cell getting into, you know, the puncture wound. 
yeah, I don't know. I've never seen any kind of like exploration or investigation into that. Okay, well, it's something to think about. So yeah. what other interesting nuances have you found in analyzing venom? And then how does anti-venom work? So here's what I find that, and that's a perfect sec, or that's a perfect description, the nuances of venom. And I think that's the way we really need to think about that. And that I think is related to the anti-venom. Let me start with the anti-venom. So anti-venom is basically, it's a hundred year old process where they immunize horses and sheep. In the immunization, you develop antibodies towards the venom toxins. You crudely extract that prep or those antibodies, and that is your therapeutic, right? Now, that's uh, very costly. It's very inefficient. It does work. I'm not going to argue with that. There is a kind of a trade-off or a risk using it, but it is a well-established medical practice for actually doctors who know how to, to treat snake bites. That's another whole, that's another story. So what actually my lab is working on is to understand the, the toxicity and the lethality of these snakes and these snake venoms using a variety of multi-omic approaches and also different type of scoring metrics, such as toxicity score. We have a hypothesis in which if we can determine the most toxic component of the venom, well, guess what? That's all we should be targeting or that's the best way to neutralize the venom. Yes, you have a lot of a lot of other toxins in there, but if you can identify these in essence, you can prioritize what toxins you need to to target. So that would be kind of more of a single target therapeutic. That could be a lot easier, a lot cheaper than making antivenom this old-fashioned way, which what we found or what's been reported is that it's maybe of that antibody mixture, maybe only 30% really target the, the, the venom toxins. So we're kind of developing a more precise way of targeting and neutralizing, you know, the most important toxins. And so actually, and this is work done by Anders Lawson uh, out of Denmark. When he looked at the venom profiles of some of these like neurotoxic snakes, he found, so for example, PLA2s, it's an enzyme in the snake venom, PLA, phospholipase. And then there's another toxin called a three-finger toxin. Well, in this venom, three-finger toxins only make up 25% of the venom. And the PLA2s make up 75%. But in his analysis, it was the three-finger toxins that are, are what he determined were killing the mice, right, or the most lethal. So don't worry about the PLA2s. They weren't even lethal. It was, the, you know, only target the three-finger toxin. Those snakes or the snake he used are, are a little bit more, they're not as complex as the North American snakes. But that's a great starting point to start to look at this type of at this type of investigation, uh, and that's what we're looking at as the nuances of toxicity, because then you can develop better therapeutics, right? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So, what are the commonalities in venoms across North American snakes, and what are the differences? Oh, so they, you will. So the the commonalities are typically they're kind of what I call like the I think they call them the top ten the major players. You're going to have snake venom metalloproteases, the serine proteases, the PLA twos are probably one you see globally across most snakes, and you're going to find L amino acid oxidases. Those are what give venom the yellow color, and so those you see are the most common snakes. Maybe some a lot of myotoxins. Those are also those also could be a lot of different type of enzymes, but those are kind of the common variety of toxins. But differences are where you see between, obviously geography plays a big part of this. So you'll see three finger toxins. Well, those are really mainly found in a lot of the uh, cobras, your colubra type snakes. They're kind of specific for that. You, you do see, depending on the like neurotoxicity or, or if a snake is more hemorrhagic, 
those kind of, of differences. And so, for example, disintegrins are mainly associated with snake venom metalloproteases, which are mainly found in the hemorrhagic snakes. There's a larger abundance in, of those toxins. And so you find these little small molecules that, that can really mess, they basically inhibit platelets from aggregating. I'm trying to like think of others off the top of my head, but those are kind of the main ones. And in some cases, PLA2s can also be neurotoxic. So those are found mostly in the snakes. We do have a variety here in North America, the Mojave rattlesnake and also South American rattlesnake and then also Southern Pacific rattlesnake. These can actually get a neurotoxic PLA2, but the kind of really acetylcholine type of inhibitors or or blockers are going to be in the three finger toxins. Those are going to be like your really lethal snakes you know, coral snakes, that venom is really toxic. You know, you're, uh, I'm trying to think of your crates or brown snakes. Those are the three finger toxins, kind of the ones you would find in like uh, Australia. Like I said, you do have kind of your garden variety of enzymes that you'll find in, in both, but the most lethal snakes will have these type of enzymes, the three finger toxins. There can be a few others, but I, I kind of focus more on lethality and toxicity. So those are the ones I can, you know, think about, but I could send you some, some websites that have you know, characterize a lot of different types of enzymes um, in these venoms. Well, what, what's the correlation between the habitat of a snake and other factors in the venom? Has anyone looked to see like, you know, snakes that live up in the mountains tend to do this, snakes that live in the lowlands do that, water snakes, etc. Keep in mind, I'm not a conservational biologist or a pathologist looking at, you know, venom snakes in that regard. But what I can see or what I believe is the consensus is that, which kind of makes sense, is that where you have really hot and warm climates is where you see a lot of the lethal toxins. Australia, you know, we, uh, most of our lethal, lethal and neurotoxic snakes are in like the desert areas of Arizona and Texas uh, and California. You could, I think you could kind of imagine from like an evolutionary standpoint that the snake does it needs to kill its prey fast in these type of climates or has developed a fast acting, you know, toxin, or there's a toxin been selected for because of the temperature. And that could also be related to to the food they eat as well. There is kind of a model or theory, the larger the animal or the prey, the more toxic the venom is. But like I said, these are really hard theories to test. There are some scientists working towards this. So that's kind of what I I would say as just being an observer of and appreciating the the snakes from this type of uh, ecological perspective. You know, this is how I would kind of generalize them, so to speak. So what are some uh, hypotheses you're testing right now with your, in your lab? We're testing the single toxin hypothesis. Can we neutralize a crude venom ec- extract with a single molecule? Depending on the venom, can we basically save the life of a mouse? That's what I tell my grad students. So we're developing these small molecule inhibitors or uh, peptide inhibitors. We are testing. So here's where I think is the great part. In terms of finding these inhibitor molecules, Reverse engineering, doing a structure-guided approach, you know, kind of a reverse engineering, bioengineering approach to looking at the molecules, uh, looking at their structure to design better therapeutics uh, using computational biology. So instead of making antivenom or hoping that an antibody can neutralize, actually make the antibody that targets that site, right? So we're working on a lot of these type of projects. Those are like the two main projects that are going on in my lab. Those are probably it. So another hypothesis or another thing that we're working on is, can we actually look at the snake bite from a systems level approach? 
So for example, if we inject the mouse, can we extract the plasma EVs from the mouse and look at the, which can have all the venom signature or the venom insults kind of in there. There's a kind of readout of what's going on. Can we use this as a tool to look at the venom reactome? Now, we did that in a mouse. Now, the bigger question is, can we take a patient sample, who's a patient who's been envenomated, and see a very similar profile? So that'll give us a lot of, definitely a lot of diagnostic information. We could actually see the envenomation process from the systems biology approach. You know, if you think about it, a patient comes in, they've been bit, we take their blood, that we can see the signature of what their cells are experiencing, and then they're going to get treated with antivenom. And, you know, we could monitor the progression and then degression with the antivenom, how these systems are changing. I think that's a very good, number one, it, it could be used as either in diagnostics or even developing better therapeutics. We can see, number one, we see the antivenom, the antivenom may be playing a role. We can see how these systems interact. And I think this is really good information for clinicians to know hey, maybe there are other, you know, other types of toxicities that we're not paying attention to. So this is something we're working towards uh, to looking at these uh, multi-omic approaches to kind of characterize the medical emergency of a snake bite. Has anyone looked at a particular snake throughout the year, throughout different temperature ranges and, you know, climate changes and all that, um, to see how the venom adapts, like maybe in the winter, mm. certain snakes that, uh, you know, don't come out much, their venom goes away and Maybe when it's spring, the venom is strongest. Has anyone looked at that? I've never came across that type of research. Uh, not to say that it's not going on. There is some interesting anecdotal evidence related to when you have snakes in the wild versus the serpentarium, like our snakes, does that venom get even more toxic or less toxic? That's something we're actually looking at with the Nigerian group. I believe in Africa, the snakes that they capture in the wild, I want to say are less toxic than the snakes in their serpentarium. Maybe it's food, maybe it's conditions. I think that's a very good question to look at. Well, I think the micro the microbiome is probably correlated. I, I spoke to a guy named Jonathan Clayton called the monkey doctor. Oh, yeah? They looked at the microbiomes of monkeys that are wild versus in captivity. And after like two weeks, the microbiome radically changed of the monkeys. So snakes in a serpentarium, I would think their microbiomes would change dramatically from that of the wild after a couple of weeks. And their, you, venom and, and their venom would change as well. I mean, if, if you could alter from a research perspective if you could alter the venom toxicity by adjusting the microbiome of the snake that would be fascinating that's a very very interesting question i think i'm going to do a lot of good okay. after you, you after we hang up here who's well, no problem I, I don't know if anyone's either studying also the yeah there might be a localized microbiome in the venom glands of the snake too that help produce the venom too i don't know that's a very very intriguing question could be possible you know hmm I know you don't have enough to do, so I'll give you more projects. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, very good. What, what do you think is the future of your work? What does it look like over the next couple of years? What do you want to accomplish? I have a great team here. We're working on a lot of different things. I think, like I said, targeting the single toxin or targeting the toxins that kind of help the spreading is going to be a really big accomplishment. I think that developing more methods to explore how warm-blooded animals have this natural resistance to envenomation. I think that's a very intriguing area because Mother Nature will, can, already has the keys and is, is already successful at developing drugs, right? So I think if we look at the dynamics between the snake bite and biting a resistant animal, then I think we can find better keys onto neutralizing the venom a lot more efficiently. 
in different types of ways, whether it's uh, through medicinal chemistry or synthetic type of approaches, but we need to explore that biological feature, this kind of, you know, predator prey interaction that doesn't work in a way to see, you know, to figure out what that warm blooded animal knows to get a better, to lock in on those mechanisms, on the structure of those proteins that can neutralize venom. I think that's going to be the next intriguing for this research and for the broader scientific community. Next generation anti-venom, I think, is on the move in terms of using phage display, other type of technologies to create synthetic anti-venom. You know, I think that's a, a super, that's an area we're also tapped into, but this is also making a lot of ground, or a lot of headway. Also, actually, this is kind of, I've seen this in NIH, is that can you use these toxins? Now, keep in mind that the Nobel Prize winner uh, last year was David Julius, who, who uses toxins for pain research. I think this is a hot area right now, how these toxins affect the central nervous system. There's a, so there's a really big push for NIH to explore this. And can, is there therapeutic value to use these? But now we have really great research tools to study pain, which are huge problems in our society. So it's harnessing, you know, this toxin potential for the benefit of human health, right? In my opinion, those are going to be your major research outlets where, where we'll see a lot of uh, really great uh, development. Excellent. Well, Jacob, it's been a great call. Thank you for coming. Where, where can people find out more about your research? Just Google a National Natural Toxins Research Center. Uh, NNTRC. You can find us on the web. Reach out to our director, Dr. Eldo Sanchez. We have two other, another faculty, Dr. Montramat, Moy Sutravat. You know, call us, send us an email, collaborate with us. You know, we're always looking to, to collaborate with venom researchers. We also federally funded Viper Resource Center. So other NIH research, or researchers can actually buy our venom from us or other vendors who are interested in developing other technologies, biotech companies. You know, we're also getting into that space as well, but you can easily find us on the web and also through Texas A&M University, Kingsville and NTRC. Well, very good, Jacob. Thank you for coming on the call. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you. You have a good day. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.